0: share some fun facts, and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history, and how food connects and
1: defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you.
0: Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing groovy. How are you? I am also pretty darn groovy. It's awfully hot over here. How are
1: you guys doing? We're experiencing some pretty warm days. Mm Mm-hmm. Finally coming into summer. It feels really delayed this year, but this weekend it is spiking up into the 80s, which you know for the Pacific Northwest is a little toasty. Yes. Actually, in the 90s for Montana, also
0: very warm for this part of the country. How do you keep cool when the weather's like that? There's a lot of sitting on the deck, some Mm. swimming in the little lake that's just down the road, and
1: some nice cool beers nice yeah Yeah, it seems like nothing quite like a cool beer on a hot day which is (gasps) surprisingly our topic today what What? (laughs) go figure (laughs) man it's like the podcast topic gods like giving us these gifts i guess
0: i'm gonna have to say it's the podcast goddesses and we'll soon find out Oh, tell me more. When I was looking into the topics for this week's episode, I super fully expected that I would find this beer variety that I wanted to talk about. But the more that I looked into the history of beer, the more articles and books popped up that focused on women's roles in not only making, but in selling beer or ale.
1: Oh, tell me more.
0: We have evidence that brewing was practiced as early as 3500 BCE. That's a long oh, time. That is a really long That's time. A very long time ago. The exact origins are debated, but most of the archaeologists agree on the fact that early brewers were women. Nice. Yeah. And it stands to reason, when you think about it, brewing would have been considered a domestic art. Which would have fallen into the women's realm of the labor divisions. As Dr. Patrick McGovern, a biomolecular archaeologist, has been credited saying, while men were out hunting, women were out gathering the ingredients they needed to make other foods and drink to go with the woolly mammoth or the mastodon. Mm. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, one of the oldest surviving beer recipes is actually a hymn that was sung by Sumerian women while brewing. And it's called the hymn to Ninkasi, which I'm sure is where Ninkasi Brewing Company out of Oregon pilfered its name. And I really hope that they have a woman brewmaster on staff. Damn straight. Anyway, these women brewers were highly respected and were likely priestesses of the beer goddess Ninkasi, who was said to have been the head brewer to the gods and who gifted beer to humans to preserve peace and promote well-being. Wow. Yeah. And she wasn't the only beer goddess. There was Dea Latisse, who was the Celtic goddess of beer. Mumbaba Nwana Waresa, who was the Zulu goddess of beer. Nephthias, the Egyptian goddess of beer. Sirius was a Mesopotamian goddess of beer. And Tenenet, who was also an Egyptian goddess of beer and childbirth. And one of the things that I found was super interesting was that many of these goddesses were also goddesses of life birth, and health, which speaks to how important the beverage was in relationship to well-being. Right. From the Sumerians to the Egyptians, and as recently as the 18th century, ale and beer, which I'm going to use interchangeably here, were a household staple. Ale was consumed as part of the daily diet. It was part of breakfast as well as part of dinner. Children consumed it as well as adults. Ultimately, beer was a way to preserve Grain crops, right? Absolutely. It was dense in calories, full of carbohydrates and proteins. It also provided a safe beverage when others weren't available. So much of the water sources were polluted or they just weren't safe to drink. Milk was used to make cheese and butter, another preservation process. Mm-hmm. And wine was way too expensive for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, brewing was dominated by women up until the 16th century. It was divided into two categories, domestic brewing, which we talked about it being a domestic art, Mm -hmm. and commercial brewing. Women who sold beer commercially were called alewives. And many of these women were unmarried or they were widowed, and they were really making a good living. After the Black Plague hit in 1348, which killed upwards of half of the European population, the ale wives really hit their stride. So you have these women who either didn't have families left after the plague, or you had families who didn't have wives that could make ale for them. So they Mm. really started to become very prevalent during this time. I kind of want to describe what an alewife looked like, because I think it's important to understand how they looked and what their process of selling was. During this time, there was this hat that was very fashionable. It was a pointed hat. It was white. But when these women were selling at the market, they would paint these hats black. Oh, wow. So that they would stand out in the crowd. Almost like a witch's? Almost like a witch's hat. But I want to be really clear. There are a lot of articles that indicate that alewives were the precursor to witches. But Mm -hmm. when you look at it historically, the the timeline doesn't match up. But when you look at what they look like, you're like, that's a witch. So she had this pointed (laughs) hat that would stand out at the markets. She would put a broom out if she was selling out of her house. She would hang out a broom to say that there was ale that was available Obviously, at this time, everybody cooked in a cauldron, so her brew was... Cooked in a cauldron. Sure. She also kept cats around the house because they would keep the mice out of the grains. So you could see how this whole modern witch concept could have come oh. from ale wives. But again, historically, the dates do not line up. And obviously, they were very versed in herbs and healing, a lot of healing too. And they knew how to mix the grains with the herbs to create all sorts of different brews of ale. The women that had this. Because they had learned how to do this, were able to market themselves, and they were making money. They were making money without men, and this started to constrain right. the patriarchy of the time, especially the church. Go right? figure, right? And so you had these right. campaigns that started to discredit these women, and some of them came from male brewers who discredited these women with rumors of their quality, but also scandalizing them by saying that they seduced their male Patreons, that they cheated them out of their money because they put wow. charms on their right. ale or their brew. They stole men from their wives. And there were morality plays that depicted these ale wives recounting their debaucherous ways of life in the bowels of hell to their demonic <laughs> friends. <laughs> and you have to think about it. Church controls culture and culture controls politics. So the most damaging of these campaigns came from the church in the form of sermons, but also in the art and poems that were commissioned by the church to depict these alewives as consorts of Satan. So you get these images that were literally painted on church walls and church ceilings that are showing these women, these alewives, holding these demons to their breasts or being judged in the doom pictures like the
1: last judgments. And they're being doomed to hell, Right. Yeah. When I think of what is an Ill wife, what does she look like? What I've seen in in woodcuts and portraits and things, the wordy woman or she's got rosaceous or her cheeks are flushed bright red. And these defects and imperfections that are, of course, meant to reflect her soul yes. and her spirit, which is a completely untrue, obviously, but... Yeah, we have this fascination of facial imperfections being Absolutely. testament to to how you are on your insides. Yes. And even some of these poems, to your point,
0: these poems would talk about her nose and they would talk about her chin and they would talk mm-hmm. about her eyes being soulless. And so it was this campaign to really oust these women out of this profession and this position that they had held for so long. And before long, these alewives were being viewed as repugnant, duplicitous women in league with Satan himself. Uh And it's really unfortunate. It's really sad because there was a time when the alewives were respected. They were a really respected component of society. They Uh provided a household with the staple that helped to keep families in good health. Happily, I think we're starting to see more women becoming brewmasters and reclaiming this once woman-dominated career. It's really interesting to think about how it could go from very woman-centric and then being pulled away from them to being very male-centric. And then Mm -hmm. women starting to reclaim this position as a brewmaster.
1: I have to admit that I really don't know that much at all about beer. So this was a fun topic for me. I've tried drinking it many times But there's something about the odor that usually gets in the way before it really hits my lips. And this makes me really sad because behind water and tea, and by water, I mean modern water, because for most of humanity, we didn't have clean drinking water the way we think about it today. But behind water and tea, beer is the most commonly drunk liquid around the world. Mm -hmm. It's in every culture. It's... As you said, from the dawn of civilization, practically, we've been making and drinking beer. And I especially love that beers are different all around the world. You think of cerveza, you think a lager, a pale ale. And one of my personal favorite words to say, Hefeweizen. And beer is great with all kinds of foods, right? Barbecue, curry, fish and chips, tempura. And sometimes beer is food, especially when it's added to marinades, batters, bread, and apparently even served as a soup in medieval Central Europe. Humans love beer, and we think of it as fortifying and strengthening foodstuffs. And that arcs back to things we've said over and over again about properties that you inherit from the foods that you eat. Right. And wheat being such a revered symbol of life and that you've got this drink that is truly from sprouted grains and hops and other magical, mystical ingredients, pretty much anything you want to put into beer, you can, as we now have seen with, right. with all the craft beers, of pumpkin and whiskey porters and watermelon beers and cranberry and all kinds of interesting combinations. And, you know, our love of it has caused some very curious legal movements to curtail it, especially in the United States. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So beer soup. This I came across in my, my research, and I was as fascinated by it as the researcher who put it forth into some material. Biographers of Prince Friedrich Wilhelm, the elector of Brandenburg, Prussia, have frequently noted that as a young ruler, the prince liked to start his day off with beer soup, which seemed largely defined as, quote, a soup of brown beer, cream, fat and flour or egg yolk, end quote, which actually frankly sounds a lot like a malted porridge, but to give like mad props to Molly Taylor Pileski of the recipes project on hypothesis.org for being gutsy enough to attempt to replicate beer soup based upon recipes from 17th and 18th century receipts. She got a bunch of friends together and they, they went for it. <laughs> so one attempt involved a bottle of dark beer Sweet cream, three egg yolks, mace the spice, not a mace the weapon, nearly four tablespoons of butter and raisins, which resulted in this hilarious comment. Quote, it's weird that it tastes sweet. I would never have guessed it since it smells like feet. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, the whole exercise reminded me of the efforts made by my friend Hallie. Hi, And myself, to concoct mahogany, the reputed favorite drink of Cornish fishermen. I think some things are just best lost to history, perhaps. But Molly's summation of the experiment was really great and an extremely important point when we talk about food history and food studies in general. Quote, in following these recipes, I did not presume to recreate the experience of an early modern diner. The gulf between our palates, ingredients, cooking tools, and methods is just too wide. But there is no doubt that the exercise helped me realize some things about the habits and tastes of the people I study. The practical application of the recipes made me pay much closer attention to the details of the instructions than if I had just read them. I could not follow the author's instructions to the letter. In the end, I had to make decisions about what modern ingredients to substitute for early modern ones, such as whipping cream with sugar for sweet cream. Most likely, my caliphon pot over an electric burner also produced different results, than an iron kettle or a raised hearth and I really love this because just last episode we were talking about Dutch ovens and that that passage took me back to that idea of brewing or cooking Mm -hmm. in a cauldron in a hearth over an open flame and and how similar and yet very different obviously it is today. We can still cook like that but we don't. We have our gas or electric ranges there's some of us who are truly adventurous as far as taking that cast iron and putting it in the fire or putting it in the barbecue, taking camping trips, creating, I hate to say primitive conditions, but elemental conditions, perhaps. Yeah, And it just stirred up a lot of interesting, fun thoughts about how we cook then versus how we cook now. Of course, I digress.
0: I think that's a really good point, though. I think that it really plays into so many different types of conversations that we can have about food? What's authentic? Because the reality is that even with time, over the spanning of a small amount of time, the ingredients that we use have changed. So the tastes of those ingredients have changed. The technologies have changed significantly. We've got different cooking appliances that we can use that definitely influence the taste and texture of lots of foods that we, that we think of Ugh. as something that is a modern recipe. And it still is very different.
1: And a lot of this, too, is illustrated really ideally in what Molly was talking about in this particular exercise, too. And I'm I'm not going to quote her here. I'm just going to paraphrase. But the idea was the German people in the Times that she studies, they really only ate two meals a day. They had a midday meal and then they had an evening meal. So this beer soup that the prince is eating was actually something more along the lines of a clarifying drink. And the idea was that he drank that in the morning and then he'd go to work and then Stop for his midday meal later. So this wasn't even, it wasn't soup (laughs) the way we think of it. It wasn't even beer the way we think of beer. I think a lot of us think about kicking back on the deck and popping the beer and maybe you're drinking a cerveza and you've got your little lime. This is nothing like that. And yet it is because it's part of that continuum of what beer was, what beer is, and what beer will be. It's still beer, but it's just kind of constructed in a different way with different ingredients to different palates and to completely different eating styles. Yeah. So while to us, beer soup seems really kind of like, what? Just as easily in 300 years, the idea of a cold beer might be an anathema to whoever's drinking it in the future. To your
0: point, 300 years ago, a cold beer to them would have been, what? What? You don't
1: drink <laughs> And how beer is that even cold? possible? Right? <laughs> And how is that
0: even possible?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because think of how refrigeration and just look at the modern attitudes that Americans have when they go over to continental Europe and they like, they drink warm beer over there. Whereas right. because refrigeration does change up beer taste. I know an awful lot about beer for knowing nothing about beer, but... <laughs> I do know some of these basic, I have no idea how or why, I just read a lot. The, the people around me drink a lot of beer, which is also part of it. This is why we do what we do, because right. beer is more than beer. Anyway, I'm so glad you brought up, you know, alewives and, and this idea about beer being healthy, because this is not limited just to alewives and to a, a certain period in time. We have equated beer with healthfulness For a really long time, I'm willing to bet that everyone is pretty much familiar with the Guinness gives you strength or Guinness is good for you taglines. This is a company that's really kind of been able to tap into that sense and that feeling that beer is nutritious What's interesting is that up until 1929, Guinness itself simply just relied upon word of mouth. They didn't do any advertising until the 30s. And that's when they started to think about maybe we should start advertising. And it turned into some of the most iconographic alcohol advertising ever. Aside from maybe Foster's Australian phobia, which I think most <laughs> of us from a certain time frame remember very <laughs> clearly. But anyway, according to Guinness Ambassador Domino Marnell... The original 1821 Guinness Extra Stout had high iron content due to live yeast in in the production. And so it was given to anemic patients and nursing mothers. They truly were given like a glass of Guinness a day because it was meant to promote breast milk and bring iron to iron deficient people. And a cavalry officer named Ethel M. Richardson, who was injured in the 1815 Battle of Waterloo, wrote a book in 1928 where he credited Guinness with his recovery, saying that it, quote, contributed more than anything else to the renewal of my strength. So modern medicine aside, (laughs) we were talking early 20th century here. Guinness did the job. But back to Ambassador Marnell, and here's a quote. In 1929, when we were about to do our first ad, we asked ourselves, what stance should we take? So we sent around a group to ask Guinness drinkers why they chose Guinness, And 9 out of 10 said their belief was that the beer was healthy for them. We already had this reputation in bars before we uttered a word about the beer. So rather than trying to hard sell on, oh, we're going to tell everyone it's good for them, like they did with cigarettes. But for the longest time, people had this feeling that drinking a glass of beer, a glass of stout, was good for your digestive system. You felt, especially with brands like Guinness, you would feel full after you drank a glass, even though it was light. I did find this really fascinating aspect about Guinness, though, that I had no idea. So obviously, Guinness's reputation in general is not limited to the United Kingdom. But I think you might be surprised by where else this particular beer is revered. Any guesses?
0: I know we love it here in the States.
1: I don't know. Second to the United Kingdom... Africa, particularly West Africa, today accounts for a solid 35% of global sales of Guinness. Wow. Why? I'm so glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. (laughs) See, the company, so it's founded in Ireland, which at some times or the other have belonged to the United Kingdom. I am not prepared to go into the the full-blown political history of Ireland and the United Kingdom. But in 1803, the company started exporting Guinness to England and then to Barbados, Trinidad, and Sierra Leone by 1827. By 1860s, Guinness made it all the way down to South Africa. So basically, wherever the British Empire established colonies or stationed soldiers in the early to mid-19th century, so too went Guinness. According to Guinness brewmaster Fergal Murray... Who I'd love to meet because, come on, these names are the best names ever. I love these names. (laughs) So Fergal Murray worked at the Guinness Brewery in Nigeria in the 1980s. And he said, quote, I've talked to Nigerians who think of Guinness as their national beer. They wonder why Guinness is sold in Ireland. Wow. Yeah. You can talk to Nigerians and Lagos who will tell you as many stories about their perfect pint As an Irishman will, they'll tell about how they've had the perfect bottle of foreign extra stout at a particular bar on their way home from work, end quote. I just love this idea that Nigerians are like, yeah, what's this Irish thing? You're like, (laughs) who who told the Irish about Guinness? Because it's such a part of their culture that this Irish stout made such a stronghold in Africa I think it's just really fascinating because it is via the English that it came, but it could have just as easily been a Belgian beer or a Dutch beer. Or I know the French aren't particularly well known for their beers, but it just could have easily been champagne. <laughs> but no, it's Guinness. It's, it's
0: interesting because again, going back to the fact that beer was a lot more affordable than a lot of those other types of Of Mm drinks. So that kind of makes sense. When I was doing my research, one of the things that they were talking about is that if you had leverage in the beer industry, you had power.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up. And I I hadn't put it in my notes, so I'm paraphrasing, but this was actually really fascinating. The Irish UK version of the Guinness advertising is Guinness gives you strength. So Nigeria gained its independence from uk in 1960 and in the 60s not coincidentally the guinness tagline specifically for africa and nigeria in particular was guinness gives you the power and they created a character who was a suave sophisticated african man who was like a james bond figure to the point where actually a movie was made starring this character not as a brand character as much as this embodiment of everything uh, a proud African man could or should be, they completely tapped into that sense that this gives you power and that if you partake in Guinness, that will give you power, not strength, not health, but power, specifically power. Back to
0: those food campaigns that we've talked about in so many of our episodes.
1: Yeah. I sometimes feel a little guilty is not quite the right word of how fascinated I think I, I can be about brands and about their marketing. It's that I'm impressed Because marketing is not an easy thing to accomplish. It is a lot about psychology and and, um, food and thought and feelings about food can affect politics. We've seen this time and again, right? The food riots we've talked about. Or, well, I'm about to talk about American Prohibition carry on. I mean, we we would be pretty amiss not to talk about American prohibition on alcohol in this episode. It's a moment in the United States history that really does seem quite the anathema for a country that adores its freedoms. And that is twice in one episode that I've said the word anathema. (laughs) Three times in one episode that I've said that word. We touched on American prohibition a little bit in our Grogs and Nogs episode of last year. But to recap uh, briefly here, as brief as I ever get, The 18th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified January 1919, went into effect in January 1920 to ban the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. And there's a strange precedent for temperance in the U.S. that stems back to our puritanical ancestors. This is exactly what you're talking about with the alewives. Yes. These religious beliefs that permeate our culture and our politics and have really shaken things up in weird ways at certain times so throughout the 1820s and 1830s there were several waves of religious revivalism that swept through the country and Again, this kind of goes back to those puritanical roots. In 1838, Massachusetts banned the sale of spirits for less than 15-gallon quantities. So if you had more than that, you were okay. If you basically were a regular average Joe with under 15 gallons, you couldn't sell that. Maine passed a prohibition law in 1846, and other states followed suit pretty much through the American Civil War of the 1860s. And the Anti-Saloon League was established in 1893 and swiftly gained ground in the minds of people frightened by massive amounts of urban growth. Folks really worried about what was changing, what was growing around them. And so a position got made that saloon culture was ungodly and a distraction from the virtues of home life. By 1917, the world was on the brink of the Great War, known as World War I. President Woodrow Wilson wanted to save American grain for food rather than have it go toward alcohol production. Right. By February 1933, Congress took up the legal work of the 21st Amendment to repeal the 18th Amendment. At the end of national prohibition, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt allegedly said, what America needs now is a drink. <laughs> At this point, you're probably thinking, okay, Kim, but what about the beer? What was interesting was what the prohibition did to the beer and brewing industry. Of 1,500 brewers in operation in 1915, only 100 survived prohibition, including some very famous popular names, at least for American beers, Anheuser-Busch, Coors, Miller Brewing, Pabst, and Jungling, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. Nearly all of these had real estate portfolios and were able to pivot by making soft drinks, malted milk, fruit juices. Ironically, during the prohibition, a very profitable side product was the sale of malted syrup as a baking ingredient, of course. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Of course. I think everyone can read between the lines that malted syrup was often used at home to make beer and other spirits. Many of these brewers try to make it with near beer, which is like, 0.5% alcohol by volume that slid under that legal line. But no one really appreciated how willing people were to break the law in order to get the good stuff. <laughs> so, all puns intended, near beer sales were pretty flat. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I've been waiting all day to make that joke. Uh, you can also imagine that malted milk sales maybe weren't exactly robust enough to keep breweries afloat. Here's where we want to see. American ingenuity at work. Again, I feel a little bit weird being so appreciative of these companies, but frankly, they did some pretty remarkable things to stay around and stuff that I actually never heard of before. So Anheuser-Busch rolled out 25 different non-alcohol related products, including infant formula, carbonated tea and coffee drinks. And they had a vehicle division that produced the paddy wagons used by prohibition officers to round up bootleggers. Wow. Yeah, right?
0: (laughs) How do you go
1: from beer to vehicles? I don't know. Like, I would love to actually look into this a little bit deeper. But we saw crazy things with the grains episode. Right. Where they were making, like, aircraft. Right. And rockets. It's just, yeah. it's American ingenuity. And it's that it it was is. that sweet spot in our country's history.
0: I suppose if you have engineers on your staff that are... are developing the whole systems that are producing the beer that you could probably pivot to making engines. It was like when we were talking about coffee filters when Melita pivoted, although that was still a a paper product, but you have to pivot in order to maintain your market share.
1: Frankly, American ingenuity, especially in the 20th century is full of these stories, right? It's full of the slinkies that were a failed spring prototype. I think the thing that really impresses me in general about what I've been learning trying to put this podcast together was just how small of a planet we really are the fact that potatoes went from one side of the world to the other side of the world. And that's just one very small example. It's just, it boggles my mind. I love it. It's, it makes me so happy to be talking to you about this kind of stuff. It's, I think it's exciting and I'm it excited so to share exciting. it. Okay, my aside. So this I also didn't know. Coors shifted some of its resources into ceramics. And the Coors Porcelain Company made everything from tea sets to to laboratory wear used by Thomas Edison. And that company is still around today as CoorsTech. Wow. Yeah. Like others, Miller Brewing Company switched to selling malted products, but struggled immensely. They were not as successful in their diversification as others. And they largely survived by selling off real estate properties that were once company-owned saloons and reinvesting in bonds, mortgages, and securities. But they survived, and that's why why I'm mentioning them here. Pabst, a Milwaukee-based brewery, sold malt syrup, purchased a soft drink company, leased part of their plant space to Harley-Davidson, and started selling a processed cheese spread called Pabst-et. Prohibition ended. Pabst sold the cheese line to Kraft. And they
0: turned it into Cheese Whiz.
1: Yes, they did. (laughs) (laughs) Or Easy Cheese or Sleazy Cheese, as we used to call it. And then Yuling and Son opened a dairy across the street from their brewery and produced ice cream, which they could store in the brewery's refrigeration facilities. Mm -hmm. The company ceased ice cream production in 1985, but revived the Yuling's ice cream brand in 2014. And this is an East Coast predominantly company, so we don't see it that often here over on the West Coast, but I'm pretty sure that folks in the Philadelphia region are going to be like, oh, I can't believe we've never heard of Younglings ice cream.
0: I know, I've never heard of it, so. yeah,
1: So yeah, that's how these, that's how these predominantly American breweries survive the Prohibition. As we wrap up here, I want to ask you one more question. Are you familiar with the folk ballad, John Barleycorn Must Die?
0: I have heard of this, but refresh me.
1: Sure thing. So it's a traditional song from the British Isles, has an unknown origin, but there's evidence of it as a, quote, pleasant new ballad, end quote, found in the London Broadside paper from 1624. So a little context, it's like the Elizabethan era. And in 1782, Scottish poet Robert Burns restructured and published it as a song poem with a more distinctly Scottish flair to it. Some might even remember that Traffic recorded the song on an album called John Barleycorn Must Die in 1970. And it's pretty much a figurative ballad. The character of John Barleycorn is the personification of Barleycorn or Barley, specifically being grown and sown to make beer. I hope that we're able to find a version that we can include in this episode. But just in case, here are the lyrics from the English version of the song. And it's actually like pretty short, but not pretty short at all. You know me. I'll stretch it. Yeah. There were three men come from the West, their fortunes for to try. And these three made a solemn vow. John Barleycorn must die. They plowed, they sewed, they harrowed him in through clods upon his head. Till these three men were satisfied, John Barleycorn was dead. They let him lie for a very long time till the rains from heaven did fall, when little Sir John raised up his head and so amazed them all. They let him stand till midsummer's day when he looked both pale and wan. Then little Sir John grew a long, long beard and so became a man. They hired men with their scythes so sharp to cut him off at the knee. They rolled him and tied him around the waist. "'and served him barbarously. "'They hired men with their sharp pitchforks "'to pierce him to the heart, "'but the loader did serve him worse than that, "'for he bound him to the cart. "'They wheeled him round and around the field "'till they came unto a barn, "'and there they took a solemn oath "'on poor John Barleycorn. "'They hired men with their crabtree sticks "'to split him skin from bone, "'but the miller did serve him worse than that, "'for he ground him between two stones.' There's little Sir John in the nut brown bowl. There's brandy in the glass. And little Sir John in the nut brown bowl proved the strongest man at last. The huntsman cannot hunt the fox nor loudly blow his horn. And the tinker cannot mend his pots without John Barleycorn. There we go. I'm thirsty. Podcasting is thirsty work,
0: it is for sure.
1: It is for sure. So I am going to go see about getting a coffee porter stout because I love me some coffee and that sounds delicious, especially with maybe some vanilla ice cream.
0: Okay, so I just have to tell you for the last couple of days, our desserts have been a coffee cocoa nib stout with vanilla ice cream so we're making beer floats yum and i've been experimenting with a recipe for chocolate chocolate chip cookies (gasps) with coffee and walnuts Mm. and an assortment of chocolate chips in it and we've been serving those chocolate chip cookies crumbled over the top of that it's pretty
1: delicious yeah no that sounds pretty rad and i'm on board i'll be right over it might All take right. me might might take me a couple of hours to get from here to there, but yeah, no, that sounds like I cannot pass that up.
0: It, indeed. We will have beer floats when you get here.
1: Awesome. While you're waiting for me, let's talk about what we're gonna talk about on our next episode. which is very near and dear to my heart because it's like camping season and that right. is campfire foods. Oh my
0: God. Right, I love me some campfire foods. You know, we were talking about how the technologies and the different ingredients can affect the taste of the food. And I definitely feel like a campfire food has such a different taste than if you made it at home on the stove or in the oven.
1: So true. And, you know, actually, now that you mention it, I kind of wonder, thinking back to the history of cooking in general, I wonder how successful we would be as a species If that food didn't taste so good cooked over a campfire. I don't know. And I don't know if I can answer that next episode, but something to muddle through while you're waiting. Sure. Something to think about while you're waiting for us. So for more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook.
0: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you
1: would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates.
0: Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.